Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Pleased to be presenting this program to you here live on audio, but also on video as well. If you're listening or watching us on the various streams, welcome to the program. If you're a new listener, we welcome you. We hope you'll come back for more uh, as we broadcast Monday to Friday at the same time slot, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, United States, 4 till 6 p.m. UK time. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. And a big thank you to Freddie Ponton, our guest, uh, investigative journalist, independent researcher, joining us uh, in the previous segment. Thank you very much, Freddie. Uh, We really appreciate great segment, great analysis as usual. So, listen, folks. Things are kicking off in a big, big way, in a big, big way, and we're going to try to give you as much updates as we can. We're going to try to bring you some analysis. We'll probably pull in, if we can, uh, Basil Valentine right now, uh, at least in the next few minutes or at the quarter past mark. Anyway, we'll keep an eye to see if we can get a hold of Basil for his hot take on breaking developments as well. As we said earlier, we're going to be joined by investigative journalist from Lebanon on the ground, Leila Haitoum, who's joining us who's joining us right on live from Beirut. We'll probably connect her around the 30-minute mark uh, or just before. We'll break uh, real quickly to get her. She's on the move. As you know, Layla is a fantastic investigative journalist reporting on the ground uh, in South Lebanon, relaying to us uh, all the latest information, the facts, uh, all the things that we need to know, the insights to know where this thing is headed to. Reporting has been incredibly accurate in the past, as she's done a few segments with us previously. So we're expecting uh, another good report uh, translating the uh, speech of uh, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah. So that's what Layla is going to be doing for us uh, in this hour. And it's very important because, uh, as I said to Freddie, the words of Nasrallah are gold in terms of what to expect as what's going to happen, what the strategy is from the uh, axis of resistance. The Israelis listen very closely to everything he says because he does what he says he's going to do. He means what he says. That's the uh, the brand of Nasrallah, uh, Hezbollah leader. So uh, we'll get uh, a play-by-play, uh, hopefully from Leila Haitoum, uh, in just a few minutes as well. And again, we'll be joined by Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent, our commentator, our trusted voice on a number of issues, especially how things are developing uh, in the Middle East. We'll get him on the live link uh, in a few moments. We'll keep an eye, see where Basil is, and if he's going to uh, come onto the program, uh, we'll give you a, a, a quick shout out there. We might bring him in hot, actually. Uh, we might bring him in live. But uh, listen, um, so the reactions from the United States on this, um, the U.S. has been somewhat muted, I think, uh, from the terrorist attack in Iran, uh, what what I'm reading from this is because the United States is muted, maybe they were caught by surprise. So has Israel telegraphed this to the U.S. intelligence as they're meant to do, as they're supposed to do, or is the U.S. left to react to what Israel is doing? See, that's the big question here. We don't see a lot of certainty coming out of Washington on this as a response, don't have any really strong statements from anybody in the U.S., so I think they probably know this is an Israeli op, 
or using its proxy, which is the Mujahideen al-Kak, uh, the MEK. It's backed by the United States. This is an, a, a, a terrorist group that was kicked out of Iran, which is backed by the U.S. and other foreign actors to try to overthrow the, quote, regime in Tehran. Was this an MEK job? Was this an ISIS job? Uh, as we know, ISIS does often act as a tool of Western and Israeli interests as they maraud around conveniently hitting targets that uh, damage uh, Israel's uh, opponents like Syria, for instance, uh, but haven't yet uh, said a word of condemnation against the state of Israel. So that's interesting. That's interesting. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Uh, let's bring on to the line right now Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent, our trusted commentator. He's on the line right now. Basil, how are you? Welcome. Very well, thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. And hello to our listeners all around the world. So what do you make of these breaking events, Basil? Things are happening very quickly. There's a lot of things that have happened in succession in the last 48 hours. I don't see a lot of reaction, not not really clear statements from Washington. Does this mean that Washington's potentially caught on the back foot by things that Israel is doing right now in terms of potential provocations here? What do you think? Well, I think Israel's really testing the Americans' patience at the moment with uh, this sort of assassination. Of course, we've also had these uh, 33, 34, is it, Mossad operatives arrested in Turkey in a surprise move. Um, let's not forget that uh, the official Israeli position is that as far as they're concerned, they have the right to assassinate any Hamas official or operative be they of a political wing, be they of a military wing, anywhere in the world. They consider that their God-given right, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, so uh, Turkey was one of the countries named by the head of Chinbet as being where they know Hamas representatives to be living and uh, therefore legitimate targets. So perhaps it's unsurprising that they've been arrested. Relations between Turkey and uh, Israel are at, if not an all-time low, then certainly their lowest ebb for several decades and um, could deteriorate further, particularly if anybody is killed on Turkish soil. But I want to just pivot quickly to... Um, a development here in the UK, the Labour MP Zara Sultana uh, has written to the Prime Minister urging him to publicly support South Africa's application to the International Court of Justice indicting Israel for its genocidal assault on Gaza, contravening the Genocide Convention. I'm told that the 84-page application is a harrowing but extremely accurate and well-detailed read. Mm. Uh, Sultana goes on to discuss that and uh, quotes, uh, you know, the displacement of 85% of the population, uh, more than 55,000 injured, so on and so forth. Um, but uh, as far as I know, uh, the official UK government position is that it abstained on the latest calls for a ceasefire at the General Assembly and is still only talking about 
you know, um, extended humanitarian pauses, this kind of thing. Certainly no immediate call for blanket ceasefire, permanent ceasefire. Uh, and, of course, uh, disgracefully, famously, Sunak himself went to Tel Aviv and bent the knee and kissed the ring and... Uh, said to Netanyahu, we want you to win. Well, it would be an almighty shift in the UK government's position if it was to now endorse uh, South Africa's case at the ICJ. I think this is really sort of wishful thinking, either that or she's, uh, you know, in her own world, really, Zara Sultana. Nevertheless, it's significant that she's done it. but And, and it illustrates really the huge gulf between at least some members of parliament, large sections of the international community, and large sections of the British public who support South Africa's position, and uh, the UK government, which is now severely embarrassed and as a result is keeping silent. Yeah, so they're in a bit of a precarious position there. Uh, that's a that's a corner they painted themselves into, though, uh, Basil, because I think the government has had every opportunity uh, to raise some words of condemnation, the British government, uh, but instead they seem to have just decided to go lockstep with the United States. The, it's the old Blair Bush shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder routine, isn't it, uh, that we've seen over the years? Nothing changed here, or has it? Well, it's very interesting because Britain used to regard itself as the United States' greatest ally, the so-called special relationship, which Winston Churchill spoke of, stretching back to the two world wars in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, plus, of course, the fact that the United States is a former British colony. You speak our language, cultural, social political ties going back centuries. Da, 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 da. But of course, Britain's no longer the uh, United States' most important ally, is it, Patrick? Who's its most important ally now? Well, it's uh, it's that little patch of uh, land uh, <laughs> on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, no, but Britain That's is right. very important. Britain is very important to the U.S. because without Britain forming a, quote, coalition with the U.S., that U.S. doesn't have legitimacy to do the things that it's doing. <laughs> a little happy birthday, happy new year graphic coming up there on the screen. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, Basil. Um, um, yeah, I, is, I, no, absolutely. Yeah, I realize Britain runs all sorts of uh, diplomatic cover for the United States and sort of uh, provides something of a bridge to the developing world as well as to Europe and helps explain the United States to uh, its own former colonies in the Commonwealth, um, you know, so on and so forth. Obviously, you know, important Anglophone country. But in terms of where we are now, because the Britain has decided to shackle itself uh, in this poodle-like fashion that people often describe to the United States, and at the same time, the United States has shackled itself in poodle-like fashion to Israel, Britain now finds itself in an increasingly embarrassing position. I mean, uh, to quote this one's doing the rounds, I believe this was actually originally on the 23rd of October, but worth repeating, uh, this is a, a member of the Knesset saying, without hunger and thirst, 
among the Gazan population, we will not be able to recruit collaborators. We will not be able to recruit intelligence. We will not be able to bribe people with food, drink, and medicine in order to obtain intelligence. So a very clear statement there that uh, food and water are being used as weapons in order to uh, produce turncoats amongst the civilian population of Gaza. Um, uh, and Moshe Saada, a Likud member of the Nesid, of the governing party, uh, said only yesterday on Israeli television, today it is clear to everyone that all Gazans must be destroyed. All Gazans must be destroyed. Uh, another translation is annihilated. So uh, uh, the commentators on X are saying, oh, well, this is all just grist to the ICJ mill. You know, mm -hmm. one of the most difficult things to prove genocide is intent. But we have now literally dozens of statements from officials, army uh, officers, members of the ruling party, uh, etc. I mean, including Netanyahu himself and his references to Amalek, that the total annihilation of the population of Gaza uh, is the aim. But together with all the evidence, like the destruction of all the civilian infrastructure, the mosques, the hospitals, the schools, etc. So... Um, you know, this is a, a you know a unique turning point. Really, are we going to see the international community as a whole now finally sort of come to its senses uh, and say enough is enough? Uh, pressure is building within the United States. The Jewish diaspora in the United States is now clearly split between those continuing to support Israel and uh, the alliance of uh, Orthodox Jews and young, largely, but not entirely, secular Jews who are absolutely horrified about what is being done in their name. Absolutely true. All of that is true and accurate, uh, Basil. So uh, I, I'm waiting to see if uh, there's going to be some sort of, you know, epiphany uh, in Washington over this as we draw closer to a World War III situation. I think few can argue that we're closer there right now, right now today, based on the events of the last 48 hours uh, than we have been in a very long time, if ever. And uh, it's very inflammatory, the situation. It does seem like some states are acting as rogue states, and we're not talking about non-state actors. We're talking about so-called states uh, that uh, pretend to be part of the international community but seem to be at war with all their neighbors simultaneously. And I'm not talking about the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, just to drop a hint there. It's not a trick question. Basil just to bring Valentine, us up to date within the last ahead. couple of hours, just to bring us right up to date within the last couple of hours, Turkey has officially backed South Africa's case at the International Court of Justice. Uh, so they are adding their name as a signatory, I believe. Um, That's significant. Uh, and quite possibly is Malaysia, which is not yes. an insignificant place. It's the most populous Islamic country in the world, a population of over a quarter of a billion, spread over thousands of miles and thousands of islands in the Malaysian archipelago. So 
Turkish Let Foreign Ministry you. spokesperson Onshu Kacheli said in a statement that Ankara welcomes the South African case, which says Israel has violated obligations under the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Those responsible for this must be held accountable before international law, he said, adding, we hope that this process will be completed as soon as possible. Alan Dershowitz has been fingered uh, to uh, represent Israel at the ICJ. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't make it up, Patrick. Netanyahu yep. wants Dershowitz to represent Israel. That's uh, that's Dershowitz saying, hold my beer, as we say in America. Uh, look what I'm about to do. Um, yeah, I can't think of a better person, especially someone that was so close to Jeffrey Epstein. But that's another story, isn't it? Or is it, you know, actually it is central to this story. Uh, he, funny only enough. A, he, only had a, he only had a rub or something, though, didn't he? He kept his clothes on. So, hey? That's right. Wasn't it that's from right. the young Russian? Yep, that's right. So nothing yeah. happened on the uh, Epstein yeah. airline, uh, Lolita Express or whatnot. So anyway, that's the, that's the story there. So I think that's important. Turkey, uh, look, countries like Turkey and Malaysia are big uh, in ship, international shipping. So this can have ramifications. We could see talk of sanctions as a result of this. Um, that's not insignificant, especially between Turkey and Israel and the Mediterranean trade. So that's significant. I think we, we should say as well that the a a terrorist attack in Iran uh, against the people who were attending the commemoration of the death of Qasem Soleimani, this is coming on the heels of Iran breaking up a major Israeli spy ring in Iran. I believe there were executions. This is uh, an addendum to your comment, Basil, about, right. or maybe it was Freddie, about uh, Israeli agents arrested. They had a major raid in Turkey, broke up right. an Israeli yes, spy ring. That's so this right. is yeah. a lot of interesting things going on here, uh, Basil, on this. Not insignificant at all. And we've also now got this friction point between the U.S. and Israel for the first time, really, since October the 7th, over the ethnic cleansing with the State Department spokesman Miller and also Ambassador Linda Thomas uh, saying that there should be no displacement. Interesting language that, that, that both, both Miller and uh, Linda Thomas-Green have, have said there should be no mass displacement. They haven't said there cannot be or there must not be. Uh, because in this international language, you know, diplomatic language, should not be is not a total prohibition. It implies that uh, that Israel could go ahead with mass displacement and get a rap on the knuckles, rather than the United States using all its political, military, and diplomatic might to prevent any such displacement. Uh, there's also talk, of course, that uh, Israel has been negotiating secretly with the Congo in Africa uh, about the resettlement of the Palestinian people from Gaza there. You have to be kidding me, honestly. No, not, no. Did, no, that's it, true. It, it, it seems like it seems like a, a satirical report. Uh, it's so ridiculous, but yet this is the world we live in, Basil. You're seeing ridiculous things being floated around right now. But look, we're going to have to wrap up this segment, uh, Basil Valentine. We really appreciate you coming in with these uh, breaking updates and reactions uh, to what's going on uh, on these big stories. So much appreciated. Thank you, Basil, for joining us on TNT this week. Thank you, Patrick.
There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. We'll hear more from Basil uh, later in the week, no doubt. Let's go to break right now with TNT, today's news talk. And on the other side, we're going to connect our guest, Layla Haitoum, live on the ground from Beirut. Reactions to the speech from Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, all this and more in just a few minutes. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of tech technology naked walks where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus we are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company ross cameron on today's news talk radio tnt back in time and who was mike flynn he was the national security advisor to the president why is it that they go after me so hard why me why does barack obama only talk about two people to the incoming president of the united states when i was sentenced the judge says you have been convicted of lying to cover up for donald trump to which i say cover up what russian collusion there was no russian collusion to cover up we see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. At this moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism. But the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com If you're still wearing a cloth or a surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host today. Listen, we're going to round out uh, this final hour with reporting from on the ground in Beirut, Lebanon. We're going to bring on to the call right now investigative journalist Leila Haitoums joining us from Lebanon. She has been covering the crisis that has broken out since October 7th extensively. Uh, she's been on this program uh, on a few occasions. Her reporting and her work on uh, Twitter spaces or X Twitter spaces has been fantastic as well. She's on the line right now and uh, a speech just occurred on live TV. Hezbollah leader, Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah gave a speech and everybody was tuning into this. Trust me, everybody in the Middle East, everybody in Israel itself were definitely watching, listening very closely to try to understand what is being said and what it means going forward. Leila will be able to walk us through some of the contents of this. We're also going to talk about the wider situation, how things are shaping up, especially in the last 48 hours with all that's occurred in the last two or three days. Uh, we're seeing a serious escalation right now and provocations. Leila Hatoum, uh, thank you for joining us on TNT. Hello, good evening. Hope all is well. Um, actually, Nas Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, Hezbollah Secretary General, is still speaking now, and he's reaching the point when it comes to Lebanon. But he literally summed up the situation in Palestine. He said that the Israelis are uh, uh, losing badly. They, ha they are covering their human losses. This is something that, uh, Patrick, you and I have spoken about extensively over the past uh, seven weeks. Um, so the idea is that the Israelis are not only hiding their human losses, he also challenged Gallant. Israel's war minister, he said, you will never be able to achieve your war goals. Your people will leave. Because Gallant was saying the Israelis will not stick to the land if there is no security and if we don't achieve our goals from the war in Gaza and beyond. Um, uh, he, uh, at the beginning of his speech, he also spoke about, uh, he addressed the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri briefly. He was, he's going to come back to it now. But um, he did mention that it's a terrorist attack that basically uh, the Israelis tried to sell it as a victory for them on the ground. However, this is not Gaza. He said that the attack is ha happened in Lebanon, not Gaza, so they can't go and uh, market it as, as a win for them in Gaza. In Gaza, they have achieved nothing after three months. And Al-Aqsa flood operation has managed to deter uh, Israel, not only uh, military-wise, but it also shattered its image worldwide in terms of uh, the um, uh, amount of killing that it has uh, done against the Palestinians. It has shattered its image as a strong military on the ground in the region and beyond. It has shattered its intelligence image as well, because they always said that they had superiority on the ground when it comes to intelligence. They couldn't uh, basically, uh, uh, what, what Nasrallah uh, called, uh, expose Al-Aqsa flood operation beforehand. And uh, he also said that Al-Aqsa flood uh, operation also managed uh, to, to uh, force the Israelis into reverse migration. They started leaving by the hundreds of thousands from Israel. There are hundreds of thousands that have been displaced as well internally. There are uh, massive uh, economic losses as well. And he said it also changed the image of Israel in the eyes of the American youth based on polls that were done in the U.S., which shows clearly that the American youth, over 50% of them, this is word on quote unquote from the solo, almost 50% of the American youth who were polled on the ground actually believe that Israel should be dismantled. And at the same time, the land should be returned to the rightful owners who are the Palestinians. And then now he basically passed the line that Palestine from the river to the sea 
it should belong and it will belong to the Palestinians. So this is kind of a summary of what he said so far. Remember, he's speaking on January 3rd. This is the, the, the third annual memorial for the assassination of uh, Brigadier General Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian, uh, the late Iranian military leader who helped uh, the axis of resistance emerge in the Middle East, especially in Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, Iraq, and Yemen. And he was assassinated in Iraq, if you remember, uh, on January 3rd, 2020, by uh, the Americans. The Israelis were supposed to be the Americans during that hit, but uh, they, they pulled out the last minute, and Trump actually spoke about that. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a, a highly uh, inflammatory uh, incident, to say the least. Uh, what has happened in Iran just a few hours ago, uh, Leila, and we have to comment as well. Um, I mean, what do you think about this attack? And it... It also comes on the heels of Iran breaking up a major Israeli spy ring in Iran. Uh, is this retaliation by the Israelis, perhaps? Why aren't they? Uh, normally, they say they can confirm, neither confirm nor deny. Uh, have they made any statement so far? They denied the uh, the assassination in in Beirut, uh, in South Beirut. So, uh, what's what can you read from this? These these Israeli comments and reactions. Um, well, you, you do have to understand one thing, uh, Patrick. Um, the idea is that the Israelis could have, because they do have the intel on the ground, they do have collaborators on the ground in Lebanon, they've done assassinations in the past. Um, they could have been able, like they were able to actually assassinate uh, Arori uh, literally yesterday. However, the timing, as you said, is very critical. It comes not only after the Iranians the, basically foiled um, a whole uh, espionage net in, in network in, in uh, Iran, but it also comes after massive failure after failure for the past three months in Gaza and elsewhere. And then we're riding on a third intifada in the West Bank as well. So they try to just divert attention and give some breather to their people that they are still superior in terms of intelligence work, that they can still basically do surgical, tar uh, tactical tar uh, tar uh, targeting and assassinations elsewhere. However, everybody knows that the Lebanese front is already open, like anybody can come in. We have lots of spies in this country who come back and forth because we are a quasi-state at one point or another. That's a sad part. They have been operational over here for, for, for decades. So the idea is that this is not a victory. They try to like change the, the, the course of what's happening. They're trying to pull the Hezbollah into uh, having a massive retaliation against the Israelis whereby the northern Palestinian front, which is South Lebanon, would expand, and that would merit an American intervention in, in favor of the Israelis. This is the only way for the Israelis to actually take a breather and have somebody else join them or fight instead of them during this fight. And they will also show their people that they still have allies and that they can still basically assassinate terrorists, what they call terrorists, but it's basically actually resistance fighters and leaders outside. So Hezbollah, have enough patience. We've been watching Hezbollah literally since 22 years until now. I've been on the ground watching them, interviewing them, meeting with their people, covering the wars that they took part in. They have the patience, all the patience in the world. They can wait for months, for weeks, for, for like you name it, and then they will do their hit when the Israelis least, least basically expected. So Hezbollah is not going to go and target Israelis overnight. They try to market that the attacks that Hezbollah did yesterday night as a retaliation to the assassination attempt, to the assassination uh, that happened, but this is not true. Um, what's happening along the southern Lebanese front is that the Israelis hit southern Lebanese towns and Hezbollah retaliates. Yesterday's night, 
the attacks from Hezbollah's side towards the settlements, the Israeli illegal Israeli settlements in northern Palestine. It was a retaliation to the continued Israeli targeting of Lebanese civilian homes across uh, the southern uh, front line. So it wasn't a retaliation to Arari's uh, assassination. We expect in the coming weeks, it might happen tonight, by the way, it might happen tomorrow, it might happen next week, we don't know, the Israelis don't know. There is Hezbollah's people yesterday, the ones I spoke with and their leaders within Hezbollah, they literally said, let them wait. We love it when they actually burn their nerves waiting. Let the Israelis wait. They don't know when the hit is going to come and where it's going to, 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 to where they are going to be hit. And don't forget that Hezbollah Secretary General also had warned from the beginning of this war, the second week of October, he had a speech where he said, if we get attacked and the Israelis change their behavior towards Lebanon, it's not only the Israelis that are going to be targeted, it's also US, US interests in the Middle East. What does that mean? It's basically the front will be expanded beyond the Eastern Mediterranean region. So what do you make uh, that in mind, Leila, uh, the United States withdrawing its largest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald Ford, from off the coast of Israel? Certainly that was a big deterrent, or was it meant to be uh, a message to Hezbollah that uh, the United States is supporting Israel? It also uh, allows for additional resource. Uh, for the IDF in terms of ordnance, uh, ammunition, maybe potentially planes being able to land there if there was an attack on Israeli air bases, et cetera. They've pulled away. Uh, but how do you read this? Is it, wh Where's the U.S. on this? That's a strange move. Or is it? What do you think? Um, I do believe it was a tactical move. Re remember, we've, we've seen these kind of things in the past as well. The Americans pulled out a little bit away from the shoreline, there's uh, their carrier, uh, USS Gerald Ford, and some of the ships, because they knew that there's going to be an assassination happening. And I, I will walk you through that. Um, you don't keep your biggest asset that's worth about 12 to $13 billion close to the shoreline where they can be hit by a certain missile to deter it. Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's, it's impossible to sink it directly with one or two missiles. But at the same time, you can actually cause massive harm to it. So it's, it cannot sail for months or literally a year until they, they, uh, they fix it if it gets hit. So the idea is that I, I received information yesterday and I shared it through um, a space that I took part in. The Americans knew about the hit. Gantz knew about the hit, Benny Gantz. Eisenkot knew about the hit. Mossad and Shabak got the green light from Gantz and Eisenkot who got the green light from the Americans. They did not even tell Netanyahu. I went out with the news that Netanyahu wasn't informed of the hit, the decision to hit uh, Arauri. And literally about 40 minutes later, Netanyahu's uh, aide actually went out and said, like, we didn't know about it. Maybe it's not us, like, at one point or another. So my intel from Washington and my intel from the Israeli side and my intel on the ground as well, literally they all told me one thing. Leila, the green light came from Washington. This is very critical. That's why the Americans had pulled out away their ship because they were anticipating there might be a retaliation after this happens. They knew about it. They gave the green light to the Israelis. The Israelis went and acted upon that, based on that. And that shows you two things. The Americans, they don't trust Netanyahu. They don't care about him. They want him out. And that's why they've been attacking him in their media every other time over the past three months. At the same time, they are supporting Benny Gantz on the ground, who has a minion called 
Gadi Eisenkot, the former chief of staff for the Israeli military forces, who's behind the Dahya doctrine. If you remember in 2006, he's the one who actually ordered the carpet bombing of all civilian areas in Beirut's southern suburbs, supposedly Hezbollah's stronghold, but it's not Hezbollah's stronghold, like everybody lives there. And at the same time, they did not inform, the, even the intelligence apparatus did not inform Netanyahu, that tells you one thing, there's no trust in Netanyahu anymore within his own command, like military command and intelligence command. So that green light from the Americans, the Americans went out and said, like, it's not us. Netanyahu went out and he said, it's not us. But there were literally Israeli officials, including Danon, from like the, their ambassador in the UN, who actually went out the first few moments and said, like, it was us. They actually acknowledged it before Netanyahu came out and he ordered everybody to shut up and stop talking about it. And then that's when everybody changed the narrative. They exposed themselves. They literally exposed themselves. So if you look at it, I believe that the Americans pushed the Israelis into it, but in front of the world, their hands have no blood on it. It's the Israelis who did it. And Israelis were stuck into that. They can't retreat. And they, they, their denial came much later on. The attacks or retaliations from Hezbollah at any point might be against the ships, might be against something else, but we don't know when it's going to happen or the scale of it. They do have the technology to do that. And don't forget that the attack also in Iran that happened today in Kerman, uh, Kerman uh, against the procession uh, commemorating uh, the assassination of uh, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranians, uh, Iran's uh, supreme commander, the religious commander, Ali Khamenei, he went out and he said, there will be a harsh response to that. So now on the list of attacks, you have Hezbollah will retaliate, Iran will retaliate. Could it be against the Israelis or the Americans? They have to wait and see. No, your analysis uh, actually squares up with the order of events and the timeline, uh, Layla. So I think uh, what you're positing there is extremely credible, if not highly likely. Uh, so it does add up very well. Now, uh, on the uh, escalation front, um, let's consider that these are uh, provocations. These are escalations by Israel, even whether they're you know ordered by the U.S. or not. But all these incidents, are they, is, is Israel doing this or whoever? Uh, I don't know about what you think about what happened in Iran. There's a number of proxies that the West use, like the MEK, ISIS, for instance. Israel has its own intelligence assets uh, in Iran carrying out assassinations, terrorist attacks, and so forth. Are they are they trying to provoke a reaction? Is is this is this the calculus here? Is this trying to set up a reaction by the axis of resistance to escalate? And for what what would be the end game to draw the United States into a conflict? Because uh, Israel can't fight the axis of resistance on its own, Leila. What do you think is going on? I do believe that the Israelis cannot, and they know they cannot, continue to fight on their own. Not only they need military support in terms of artillery and uh, ammunition and intelligence report as well, satellites, etc., but they also need the numbering, the number of, uh, of uh, soldiers, as well as the technological advance that the West has, especially the US and NATO countries that are part of this region. Like they have literally sent their ships to, to aid uh, Israel at, at any point. They are all um, uh, setting uh, their, their ships next to Greece at the moment. So you don't know when they're going to make a move. They're waiting just for the green light. When it comes to the US, the US actually had waited for the right time for it to actually take part in the fight. Why, by, by the right time, I mean they're trying to uh, deplete the strength 
and the ammunition that the resistance, the axis of resistance in this region has, be it in Iraq, be it in Lebanon, be it in Palestine, or even Yemen. And by the time that these people are, are so invested in fighting on the ground and they have their fighters tired, they will go in and it, they think it's going to be a picnic for them. We've seen it happen in the past. We've seen it happen in the past. The Israelis always come last and then they fight and they basically they, they stand on top of a corpse, plant their uh, flag and they claim that they did the victory. This is not the case this time. The uh, the resist the axis of resistance across this region are not only well stocked on arms that they have gathered across the years, but also they manufacture their own arms. And we've seen it with the Palestinian resistance on the ground. Hamas has its own sniper rifles, their own makeshift rockets and missiles that continue to fly over from Gaza towards Tel Aviv. And if those outnumbered and understaffed and um, less equipped Resistance in Gaza managed to last three months. Imagine what Hezbollah can do, basically, and how, how long they can last with, with the, all these kind of technological arms and advancement that they have. They have attacked drones. They have, so far, what we've seen, um, half a ton missiles. They do have uh, medium-range miss missiles. In the past, we knew that they had longer-range missiles. So the Israelis can can uh, expect the unexpected when it comes to that. Same for the, for the Americans. What the Americans did is they kept pushing the buttons Towards the Israelis becoming desperate, they can actually kick out Netanyahu now easily because of the public opinion turning against him. At the same time, what they can do is uh, start cre creating these sparks everywhere, basically in Iran, in Yemen, in uh, Lebanon, in, in uh, Palestine as well. And then they move in where each axis is well invested and focusing on its own region rather than focusing on the Americans. This is what they think. This is what they think. But this time, it's not going to work for them. This time, it's not going to work for them. And I'm telling you because I'm seeing it on the ground. And that's why the Americans actually pulled out their, their ship. It's because they expected a retaliation. They didn't bring it back to Washington. They didn't pull it out from the Eastern Mediterranean region. They didn't move it towards Egypt. They kept their Eisenhower carrier next to Bab al-Mandab and Aden, Gulf of Aden, for a reason, next to the Horn of Africa. Because at any point, if this expands, they will have another carrier that can handle the GCC region if their interests over there are hit or their interests in the Eastern uh, Africa region or Horn of Africa is, are also hit. Yeah, they're very vulnerable, the United States, because their, their physical footprint in the Middle East on the ground is not what it was before. They're relying on their naval assets to provide that support, as you said, Leila, which actually I think makes them extremely uh, vulnerable and, and much less effective uh, to do what they want to do in the region. Look, let's take a quick break here, and I'm sure, Leila, you want to get back to Nasrallah's speech. We'll come back with Leila Haitoum in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. Thank you for listening and watching. We'll be back in just a few moments. Stay right there. I said, could she die? And the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe, and I thought, you know, what are we going to do if I die here? <laughs> How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. 
Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and help save lives in the bush. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? Political commentator and investigative journalist, you're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast here on Wednesday. Thank you for rejoining TNT, today's news talk. And uh, right now we're talking on the line with veteran reporter, investigative journalist, Layla Haitoum, who's been covering this latest crisis over the last 10 weeks very closely uh, indeed. And right now we are looking at uh, potentially impactful speech by Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah in Lebanon. This is a very watched program, Layla. I think it's safe to say, Layla, that uh, everybody in the Middle East, especially even in Israel, um, in fact, I think Nasrallah gets higher ratings with Israeli audiences than Netanyahu does when he takes to the airwaves, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, what what can we glean so far uh, from Nasrallah's speech? Go ahead, Layla. Um, well, I can actually tell you that uh, it just ended and um, he ended it on with a big bang saying that the assassination of uh, Sheikh Saleh al-Arawri is a serious crime that will go- not go without punishment. And those uh, who basically want to launch a war on us, we will go with that war towards the end. And if they think that uh, they can go with war with, uh, into war with us, we tell them the war will be extremely costly. So Hezbollah has already hedged for a long war. Remember his first speech and his second speech during uh, October and November? He literally went out and said, this is a war that's going to be lengthy and whoever has the patience will win towards the end. And he gave an example about Lebanon. Lebanon literally resisted the Israelis for almost 15 to 20 years before the Israelis decided to unilaterally withdraw from most of southern Lebanese territories that the Israelis had occupied in the past because of their human losses and the cost of staying there. So now basically he's, he's saying that we will go to with the, in this war towards the end if it's launched against us and beware because it will be extremely costly on the other side. That means they are hedging towards a costly and very lengthy war. No, that's uh, his, it's safe to say. I think Leila Hezbollah has prepared uh, for this moment uh, for a very, very long time. They have a very entrenched uh, defensive position. They know exactly what their objectives are. The question is, Leila, does Israel really know what its objectives are? Because there seems to be uh, a lot of confusion that uh, why, why did they pull out so many troops from Gaza? Is it because they're preparing to open up another front against Hezbollah in South Lebanon? And is does this also mean that they can't fight or sustain uh, a two-front conflict, Israel? What do you what do you make of that recent announcement just in the last two days? Uh, they say they're drawing down thousands of troops uh, out of the the theater in Gaza. Go ahead, Leila. 
Um, well, I, I don't know how, how much people might uh, know about what happens tactically on, on a burning front, but you don't keep your soldiers usually for months in the same place without doing any movements and changing the battalions. What happened was that they were literally doing a change in battalions, uh, five battalions in total, and some of them, they withdrew them, made them rest for some time, and they sent them to the north. They're bringing some battalions, basically, and some uh, groups from uh, West Bank and the north down to Gaza as well. This is according to our internal information, not only what they actually announced. So it's not the end of the war in Gaza, but they have they are phasing it out because of the amount of losses that they have literally accumulated over the past three months. Gallant, from the beginning of the war, he didn't want to go full throttle, but he was pushed into it. Benny Gantz wanted to go through with it because he thinks that he's going to be the next Ariel Sharon. He failed in 2006. I think he's just trying to, to cover up for his past failures. Um, he's also, has he has aspirations to run as a, the next prime minister. That's why he has this massive fight with, with Benjamin Netanyahu all the time. And that's why also Gallant has a fight with Gantz and Netanyahu. It's because he also has premiership uh, aspirations. Now, to put this on the side, those movements that we see, the military movements on the ground in Gaza, is just phasing out a little bit because, as you said, they expect to have an expanded northern front, which means they already were looking for any excuse to ignite that front. Saleh al-Arawri was one of the excuses. If it doesn't work, they're going to look for something else. If a fly or a bee passes from Lebanese side across the blue line to the other side, they're going to actually take it as an excuse and do it. We've seen it in the past. They're, they're not going to fall short of any excuses. If there's any none, they're going to, to invent one. So um, I do believe that what, what we saw in Gaza is just phasing out, but it's also militarily, tactically, just exchange and repositioning of their troops in preparation for the next phase of, of the war, which is basically in North uh, Palestine, South Lebanon. Um, I don't know what people uh, think about it, but uh, they still have seven of their nine elite teams still fighting in Gaza. They have pulled out Gulani and they have pulled out Shayatid 13, or most of them at least, not all of them. And uh, I have to tell you one thing, we do have reports on the ground and I've written about it extensively over the past three weeks. There has been there have been des deserters from the Israeli uh, military forces, the, the occupation forces themselves, not the reservists. There has there have been deserters, especially among Golani. That's why they had to pull out Golani. And Golani is one of their top elite teams, by the way. So is it safe to say that morale within the Israeli armed forces is at an all time low? Uh, are they motivated or are they demotivated uh, compared to past conflicts? What would your assessment be of the state of the Israeli military right now? Well, you you don't have to look far away from like and, and try to search for the statements. You just have to look at TikTok. The more they publish videos of them dancing and having parties in, inside their barracks, that means they're trying to hide something else. Their morals are low. There, are, there, there has been several uh, incidents of mutiny this and disobedience and refusing to go to war in Gaza, uh, in these barracks themselves. So what do they do? They go out to show the, the families of the soldiers, no, no, they're fine and they have high morale. They bring in a singer, they shoot like about 10 to 15 soldiers in a barrack that has literally about 300 soldiers. You don't see 300 soldiers gathering. You only see like 20 or 30 clapping for that singer and they put it out on TikTok. This is kind of a propaganda that doesn't, like li literally, like only the simple-minded would fall for. And then the new ones, the green green bodies, I call them. But uh, seasoned journalists, they wouldn't fall for that. And we were laughing at it at one point or another. That's why the Israelis had stopped these propagandist kind of videos at one point. The morale is really low. And the soldiers are literally on the last brink of doing a coup at one point, like a mini coup inside their, their own, uh, basically, war that's happening in, in uh, Gaza at the moment.
and also their their tank battalions have uh, suffered heavy losses in Gaza. So you know that part of their military uh, unit, uh, the armored vehicles and so forth, s you know, severely short, severely disabled. Uh, they have to be restocked. They have to be reconfigured. Uh, think about all the people operating these as well, if they've taken losses. So, you know, this is this is not a good moment, I think, for the Israeli uh, uh, operation in Gaza. Uh, but do you think they might compensate by uh, resuming uh, heavy bombing and airstrikes uh, and just working from the air as they did before? As horrific as that was, Leila, uh, what can we expect in Gaza in the coming weeks? Uh, well, we, 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 I can start with, with what you just stated. The Israelis literally suffered almost one third, a loss of one third of their armored vehicles and tanks in Gaza. We're talking about 820 to 840 at the moment, if not more, because the last number that we received was about a week and a half ago when uh, Abu Abeda, has, uh, sorry, Hamas's uh, spokesperson, Al Qassam Brigade's spokesperson on the ground, went out and said um, that the Israelis, ha we have destroyed about 824 and up. Uh, tanks uh, on the ground and uh, armored vehicles, which means that's the one thir one third of what the Israelis own, and that's massive. And also, the the Israelis are short. I said, as I said before, on one o seven artillery and one o nine artillery. They're short on missiles. They're short on um, Iron Dome that has been destroyed by not only Hezbollah and Northern Lebanon. Two Iron Domes. Each one has like about sixty to 80, 80 missiles, um, uh, and. The, the Palestinians themselves, they have targeted one of the Iron Domes as well. The Yemenis have targeted the Iron Dome uh, in um, in Elat as well. So the, the, their air defense systems are running short in terms of like helping out uh, secure their areas. Uh, at the same time, uh, I mean, like I, I, don't, I don't know how to put it. Like the Israelis have driven themselves into quicksand from the first week they went into Gaza. They cannot only rely on air force, and they know that basically from where from uh, from 2006, they tried to deter Hezbollah by using air force, it didn't work out. They tried to do the Dahi doctrine, which is carpet bombing all civilian areas, it didn't work. The same thing happening in, in Gaza now. Remember, after the ceasefire, the day before the ceasefire ended, I went out on a space and I said that the Israelis, we have intel and information that the Israelis are going to go from central Gaza towards southern Gaza. Northern Gaza is not finished yet, but their main focus now is on central and south Gaza. Now, going forward, according to the intel that we received over the past week, the Israelis are going to try and bomb, like they're going to focus just on South Gaza, which is really sad. They have completely relinquished the idea of having their soldiers on the ground in North Gaza because they have sustained heavy losses over there. They claim that they control the situation on the ground. However, they go in for half an hour, shoot a video, then leave. If they stay for more than that, they get hit and they get killed. And we're talking about 87 Israeli soldiers killed in over the past 48 hours. 87 soldiers in 48 hours. And that's I'm, I'm not talking about those who are critically injured or lightly injured because critically injured are also dying afterwards, most of them. Some of them basically, they, they claim that they have contracted this bacteria that's eat, killing everybody and there's no 0% chance to live. I mean, come on, give me a break. Like the amount of deaths from bacteria is more than the amount of deaths at, at the hands of Hamas. Like basically we're going to, uh, to, to, to tie a red ribbon on, on that bacteria's head and claim it as like one of the axes of resistance. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, the, for going forward, the Israelis are going to only rely on uh, air force and some incursions from the southeast part of Gaza, especially basically Khan Yunus, and that's it.
Well, that's uh, things are moving incredibly quick right now. We really appreciate uh, Leila Hatoum, investigative journalist from Lebanon, for giving us this information during this very informative segment. Leila, thank you very much, and please uh, stay safe with your travels. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you and everybody in your country as well. That this uh, conflict uh, comes to a good resolution, hopefully sooner than later. But take care, Leila. Thank you, dear, and thank you for giving me a voice over here. No, that is our pleasure, our pleasure, our honor indeed to have you on the program. Leila Hatoum, Freddie Ponton in the first hour, Basil Valentine. We've got great analysts on this program, and we've got a great audience as well. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Patrick Henningsen signing out, but stay on TNT, today's news talk.